That smooth Christian jazz you're hearing means you've tuned in to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm your co-host, Aaron Zimmerman. I'll be joined by Jacob Smith as each week we break down the lectionary readings for the upcoming Sunday to give you something to think about, and if you're a preacher, to give you something to preach about, and no matter who you are, to give you a connection to the never-changing message of God's grace for actual people like you. Unzip that monogrammed faux leather Bible carrying case and cover, pull up a chair, and let's dig in. Well, Jake, here we are recording for the 12th Sunday after Pentecost. Uh, this is now deep into August. People are going back to school and dealing with all that, and uh, we're still in this weird, surreal, Kafka-esque nightmare, and, uh, but one thing that is always true is the, the gospel stands. We'll be talking about that today as we move through readings from Exodus chapter 1. We are now uh, uh, moving on to the Israelites in Egypt and what happens with them now that we're done with the Joseph story. We're moving into Romans. We'll continue with Paul and Romans, and uh, then Jesus talks to his disciples at a grotto in Caesarea Philippi in Matthew 16. But before we get to that, Jake, how are you doing? I'm hanging in there, and, uh, you know, like you said, uh, living in this kind of one-foot-in, one-foot-out kind of world of COVID. And, uh, you know, when we're getting ready, um, kids will go back to school in a couple of weeks. It's all going to be online. <sighs> and, um, it, you know, and we're just uh, thinking through the ramifications of that and work and, you uh, uh, thinking about beginning some in-person services in September, so but uh, taking all of the necessary precautions. But you know, in the midst of it, I'm 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 hopeful because you know we believe that this is the God who works in the midst of um, weirdness and disaster and uh, and all sorts of things. So um, God is still good. He's still reigning in heaven, and He still can you believe it? Loves you and me. Mm. But you're His favorite. I, well, everybody knows that. Your name is um, Jacob, after all. That's right. And um, but I uh, know. So we kick off, and uh, we have um, we uh, have left the book of Genesis, and uh, we are beginning now on track A with the book of Exodus, and uh, we are about four hundred and thirty years into the future um, from the end of Joseph's life uh, when Israel settled in Goshen to now in Exodus chapter 1, when there is a new king who arises over Egypt, who knew not Joseph. And so, um, and uh, we begin to see uh, what sort of happens in the midst of categories and in the midst of kind of, well, racism and uh, misunderstanding. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, they uh, begin to uh, fear uh, the Israelites and um, put them to work. Yeah, that's right. So the Israelites had arrived in Egypt, and it had been a blessing. They had been starving. There was a famine. God had arranged for Joseph, an Israelite, to be there and to welcome his own brothers. Major story of reconciliation. All the Israelites come. They settle in Goshen. But as you said, things have declined. And now the Hebrews, the Israelites, are extremely numerous, but the Egyptians are worried, and this new ruler of Egypt, this new pharaoh, does not care about Joseph's people at all. 
and just exploits this group of people. And remember, this is again in the context of God saving the world through the line that comes from Abraham. So maybe it looked good in that the first part of that promise is coming true, meaning there were now offspring. Now there's a lot of offspring, but we're still not in the land, and we're still not clear where this blessing to all nations is yet. Uh, but we're going to see God working out this plan, but not in a way that we would like. You know, most of us set up a plan for our life that's like point A, point B, point C. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes Then baby. comes grad school, and <laughs> that's right. you wait 10 years to have kids. And then you, you, you build the nest egg and all that. And in this story, it's seemingly taking God forever to get to his people being in the land that he's going to give them. Yeah. And it gets even worse here in Exodus. So it's just important to see that because for your people hearing the story, they're going to think, this is an interesting story. There's these great Hebrew midwives who sort of remind me of the nuns in Sound of Music, kind of uh, secretly <laughs> acting against the oppressive That's empire. Good. like, And, the, you know, how the nuns fought with the Nazis. So this is um, uh, a great story, but again... God said, I'll give you land, give you people, and bless all nations. And it's like, come on, when is this going to happen? It's already been centuries, and now it's going to get even worse. They want to kill our babies here. That's what happened in the story. The Egyptians command the midwives to throw the male children into the, into the Nile. Yeah, and, uh, and, for, and for, um, for our more right-wing listeners, this isn't a text on um, being pro-life or pro-choice. This isn't what this text is about. I've heard people use this to discuss this. What this text is really about, if you're going to preach on this, I think there are um, three things that immediately stand out uh, that could encourage your congregation. The first is, is that, Aaron, you're absolutely right. This is 430 years, as I said earlier, since Joseph. And um, this is a long time. And a lot of people right now, we're in the midst of COVID. We're getting ready to go. I mean, people are getting anxious. And what is God doing? Well, we have only been in this for about five or six months. You know what I mean? God is at work, though. And sometimes um, in the midst of kind of waiting for something and waiting for God, um, what we think is long um, um, it isn't that long. As Peter says, do not consider God slow as some count slowness. And so God is actually working out a plan. The second thing that I like to see jumping out of this text is... Um, a lot of people think Moses is the main character of this story. He's not the main character. He's not the protagonist. Um, the opposite of the protagonist of this story, though, is, is, is Pharaoh. And uh, one of the things that's being conveyed here is um, that Pharaoh thinks he is a god. And indeed, the Pharaohs did believe themselves to be god. And when people believe themselves to be god, then they become the authority and the rule. And oftentimes, those rules and those laws are oppressive and they go against the natural order. And killing children goes against the natural order of things. And, um, and what you see is, is that when a law goes against the natural order, one of these things, these ladies, these midwives, in a Dietrich Bonhoeffer sort of sense, kind of go against the rule but, uh, uh, of things. But uh, this brings you to the third point. If Pharaoh isn't God, then who is? Well, that is the only, there's only one God, and he's working out a plan, and uh, this plan takes what appears to us to be a long time to work out, uh, what appears to go through a lot of mud and a lot of darkness to work out, but it is a plan to save the whole world. 
And, um, and uh, it involves this guy named Moses, who uh, becomes a type and a shadow that points us to um, the Savior of the world, Jesus, who delivers us not who delivers us not out of just simply the bondage of slavery to other people, but the bondage of slavery to sin, death, and the devil. And so um, that's kind of, those are the, the things that I would hit on if I was talking about Exodus. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's, there is also a great uh, idea here. As you said, the protagonist is not uh, Moses, the protagonist is God here, who's mm -hmm. working to save his people in and through everything. And you gotta love the way that uh, the Hebrew midwives, and we actually know their names, Shipra and Pua. I met a woman recently who had these names tattooed on her forearm in Hebrew, and I thought that was a pretty cool um, that is tattoo. Cool. It just exalts these women because they go against power, and they're very sneaky and wonderful about it, and God deals well with them. Um, and uh, I think it's a it's an it's an impressive thing um, to see these women, in a sense, take a political stand, mm. violate the law, and do it um, in, in such a clever. And there's some sort of humor here as well. Just the you know Hebrew women are so strong. We we run to them, and they've already given birth. These amazing women. Uh, there's just there, there's something really wonderful about the whole thing. But I think again the idea of God working. It, the, the suffering here is so intense. The Hebrews are so put upon by the Egyptians. They, the Egyptians dread the Israelites, it says. And you mentioned that racism, which is clearly here. They're ruthless on these Israelites. Um, watch Roots. Watch 12 Years a Slave. This is the kind of stuff that's going on here. Their lives are bitter, and it says the Egyptians were ruthless. And so that's definitely happening. So bad it is that this mom... We learn the midwife's name, but not Moses' mom's name here. They, they, she puts this baby in the basket. But yet, again, even in these desperate situations, God is there. God is working out a plan to save this child, to save his people. And we're just going to learn more amazing stuff about uh, Moses. And, you know, even in this horrible situation, Moses' mom still gets to raise him. She gives him up, but gets to raise him, which is a powerful thing. Well, I think we've covered it in Exodus. Jake, any, anything you want to correct or add? No, um, well, not correct. You're always right in my <laughs> book. But, um, uh, in, but, but it does, that does, uh, I think, uh, provide a segue into Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. And, um, and uh, you know, it's important to understand the structure of Romans here um, and uh, to understand what Paul is talking about when he says to uh, offer yourself up to present your body as a living sacrifice. Um, Romans is structured and basically like the first, to, to break it down simply, the first 10 chapters are theological. Uh, the first 10 chapters of Romans is about this plan that God is working out that includes Genesis beginning in Abraham and works its way through Moses and all the way to Jesus fulfilling it all. And, uh, and then if you look at like, um, well, maybe even beginning in the ninth chapter, but Paul begins then to answer some of like the practical questions. And our reading from last week, Romans chapter 11, you remember, has God, uh, um, has God like, you know, uh, uh, stopped loving his people, essentially, Paul um, is asked, you know, and by no means. And, uh, and you begin to see like, but how this plan all completely works and how God has 
preserved a remnant throughout the Bible. And when he means preserving a remnant, he doesn't mean that they like necessarily live, but it's a preserving a group of people that he's chosen that has always related to him by faith in Christ, in the Jewish Messiah, and uh, who fulfills the law for us. And so, and uh, Paul is, and there's that great line at the end of Romans chapter, uh, our reading from last week. Let me just read it. That sets the stage from Romans chapter 11, where Paul says this. I love this freaking line. He says, For God has imprisoned all to disobedience, so that he may be merciful to all. And then from 33 on to the end of chapter 11, he gives this like crazy, crazy doxology. Oh, what heights, what depths, how amazing is God's love and mercy and grace and forgiveness. Just check it out. It's amazing. And then he begins to this idea. So I appeal to you. I ask, oops, excuse me. He says, um, I appeal to you, therefore, my brothers and sisters, in view of God's many mercies. So when you see a therefore in the Bible, you might want to understand what it's there for. And it's there for to thrust you back to the previous section. So in light of all that I've said about the atoning work of Jesus, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, I now um, appeal to you to present yourself as a living sacrifice, as someone who gives their life for the sake of their neighbor. You know, that's spiritual worship. You're not an atoning sacrifice. The sacrifice is done. God has worked that plan out, and you are now justified before God. Nothing can take that away, and he relates to you now in mercy. But now, as a living sacrifice, you live for the sake of your neighbor. And what we begin to see now through the rest of Romans, especially here in our reading today, is a look at what the Christian life actually begins to look like in light of God's uh, many sacrifices for us. Yeah, and I think that's such an important point, if you're going to preach on this, to say that many people live their life like they are an atoning sacrifice. They're like trying to make up for something they did wrong a long time ago. They carry around a lot of guilt for past actions or current situations. They're trying to atone for something. And the whole point of Christianity is that the atonement has already been made. One full, perfect, sufficient sacrifice and self-offering and oblation, as the prayer book says. It's all been done. And so you are a living sacrifice, meaning... So sacrifice is, is the opposite of American individualism. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Uh, Horatio Alger rags to riches story. A, living, a sacrifice gives up the self for the benefit of another or others. And so to be a living sacrifice means to give yourself up. And you do it not to atone for anything, not to gain something, but as he says, because of the mercies of God, because of what God has done in Jesus in the full and perfect sacrifice, you can now be free from the egocentric, selfish-driven, self-absorbed American lifestyle and give yourself up. And that's what I think it's important to know where it says, do not be conformed that's to this right. world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So many people think that means... Uh, I can't Try harder. think sexy thoughts. <laughs> like so many people were taught in youth group, be transformed by the renewing of your minds means uh, don't think about sex anymore in any way. <laughs> it was very puritanical reading. Jake is laughing a lot because he grew up in a youth group like that. He's just chuckling. <laughs> I was that um, youth minister. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And it, it, what he says, renewing of your minds, what he means is get away from a view where you're individualistic. Yeah. Where you're all about your success. Get away from a view where you're trying to earn something from God. Be renewed in such a way that you can now 
uh, as he says, discern the will of God, which is what? To like serve other people, to live for other people, uh, to not be absorbed in yourself, which is why then he goes into this discussion about the body of Christ, the community, that we all have these different gifts, not for ourselves, but to serve other people. That's what renewing your minds is about. Although, if you do want to Google the renewed mind is the key, you'll see a great family trio rapping slash dancing Christian musical. It's you can't. It's more than I can even describe. I will avoid it. So, um, but, <laughs> but you're absolutely right. Do not be conformed to this world. Doesn't mean you know we don't um, we don't smoke or chew or go with girls who do. Um, do not be conformed to this world uh, means that uh, we're relating now to God or the gods differently. Um, you know, we are, um, we are living as free people because Christ has set us free. And uh, he, begins that, um, he begins that second paragraph, for by the grace given to me. Amen. You know what I mean? I mean, like, so now in freedom, I say to everyone among you not to think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think. You know, but to think with sober judgment, but it, it all, that all flows, not because I'm gritting my teeth, count me out. I'm doing that because we're doing this because for the, by the grace given to us, mm-hmm. I mean, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And so that's, um, that's the, really the point. I mean, if you were going to hit kind of some points here, I would just, I would appeal back to um, the big story, which Paul lays out. And how Christ has fulfilled that. And so now not conforming to the rest of the world, a.k.a. trying to claim, climb a ladder, but uh, looking out towards our neighbor, we uh, serve them as living sacrifices. Yeah, and I think, you know, this thing, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. That was countercultural then and is countercultural yeah. now. Because in the ancient yeah. world, it was all about trying to exalt yourself, be the strong person, not the weak person, all of that stuff. And I think, you know, current listeners and uh, people in your congregation, if you're going to preach to them, you may want to ask yourself and ask them, when was the last time you apologized to anyone? If you have not said, I'm sorry recently, you probably think of yourself more highly than you ought. And if that is a problem for you, if you've not admitted that you're wrong, if you always have to have the last word, you are then, it means you're a person who thinks of himself or herself more highly than you ought. And it probably means you're not in touch with how much you've been forgiven by God for all the shenanigans you've been up to in your life. Um, I want to also go back earlier to something, Jake, you said in this uh, recording uh, today. You said, I love this freaking line. And I love that you said that. um, And I I love this line here. Um, Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought because so much about today is like trying to train people to think of themselves more highly than they ought, to sort of delude themselves into thinking that um, that there's nothing wrong with them. And I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not pro-shame. I'm not saying you should think that you're a terrible person. You are a beloved child of God, made in God's image, folks. Um, but there's kind of this view of of, of oneself that gets promoted a lot these days that's like that's in complete denial of the complete mess that we often are and can be it's not to say we're not valuable not to say we're not worthy not to say we're not loved but anyways i just wanted to i think this is one of paul's great lines no Freaking i think lines. that's uh that is really great and uh it, and it reminds us that and um and many of us have heard and uh, been taught the old saying it's better to be safe rather than to be sorry 
And, um, but what St. Paul is saying here is that's not true. What St. Paul is saying here is that it's much better to be sorry rather than to be safe. And, uh, and when Christ has forgiven you, you can live your life in the realm of sorry. And uh, sorry is oftentimes the best place to be because it's the place where you can be forgiven. And, uh, you know, and I think that um, that that would do a whole wonder in shaping our current dialogue and conversations on race, um, on um, economic disparity and inequality, is if we would begin from the place of not trying to justify ourselves or yell at each other, but rather beginning from the place of, damn, I'm sorry. Like, and that, uh, that's, that's a conversation beginner. That is to be a living, that's the first step in living sacrifice. Yeah, you know, he, so, he says individually, we are members one of another. And I think that's one of the perspectives that so many people have lost. We sort of think, individually, I'm an individual, and you can't tell me what to do, uh, which is the opposite of a Christian perspective. Christian, if you are a person that has a don't tread on me flag, uh, you need to rethink <laughs> that. Now, I love the American Revolution, uh, but um, uh, the idea that you are sort of an island that's not connected to other people is actually anathema to, to not only the founding father's vision of this country, but, uh, but, this, but more importantly, the scriptures. You are connected. You are one body. And if one member of the body is hurting, the other part is too. And I think one of the things that has troubled me about the conversation you mentioned about race in this country is that there seem to be people that are not troubled by the fact that other members of the body of Christ are hurting and are suffering. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah. we should... And they'll actually do anything to justify themselves from having to right. um, address this. And regardless you're, you're of the, right. Yeah, regardless of the political or policy responses, uh, we in the church, I'm not talking about the world, but we in the church should weep when any member of the church is struggling in any way or afflicted, whether it's from addiction or oppression or uh, poverty or illness. Uh, we should we should care about all of that. So, Amen. Well, good. so let's uh, move now to Jesus' conversation. Caesarea Philippi, tell us about this city built to honor uh, Philip uh, uh, in, the, in, yeah. in those days. Well, basically, uh, Caesarea Philippi, it's up in the north. It's right on the border of Lebanon today. And, it's um, right where the River Jordan begins, kind of, right? That's right, in what's called the Golan Heights. And, um, and uh, basically, Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi was established as a Roman kind of retreat, Roman Greek retreat center, you know, for uh, soldiers who had been sent to uh, Palestine uh, in order to, um, you know, which was so, you know, according to the pagans, just black and white and no fun because um, uh, of the Jews and their monotheism and their strict rules and kosher habits. Caesarea Philippi was established as like kind of a place to like for um, for Gentile people doing business in Palestine, a place to go to remind them of home. And if you go there today, indeed, you can see the slots carved out that were for all of the gods, because the patron uh, god of Caesarea Philippi was Pan, the god of everything, because pagans from all over went there, so they wanted to celebrate everybody's god. It was the uh, picture of celebrating diversity. Praise the Lord. So, but uh, um, that's what Caesarea Philippi was. And like you, you've, you've been there, Aaron. There's a temple to Zeus. There's a temple to Pan. There's a temple to uh, several gods there that what remains. And then carved out were all the minor deities. Mm -hmm. And so, and in Caesarea Philippi at the time, there was a giant esplanade there where you could see all of these gods. 
And I've always kind of pictured Jesus, you know, they're, they're there, they're in the north. And so um, they go up there and they're walking down this esplanade. And before them are all of these pagan gods. And Jesus poses them the first question. He poses them two questions here, but he says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Um, and so he's going to be teaching them a lesson here in uh, Pagan Town. You've heard of Flavor Town? They're in Pagan Town. Yeah. So. Yeah, and so he asks them, and it's just interesting, Jesus going into a Gentile area. This would have been another thing that would have raised eyebrows and people would have clutched pearls all over uh, about this. And he, uh, he, has, he has this conversation. So the, the people say the answers, his disciples, the answers that they give are pretty typical. And they are often what people think Jesus is today. Because to say John the Baptist, mm. Elijah, or Jeremiah means basically you're in the mold of an Old He's Testament prophet. He's a great prophet, prophet. And you're here to tell people to shape up or ship out. That's what prophets were about. Here's God's law. You are not following it, so get it together. Uh, yeah. And um, that's what people think Jesus is. They think he's someone who tells us how to live. That's what they think the Bible, God's instruction manual for our life, etc. And Peter's answer, divinely given, to enable Peter to say it, because Peter was not the sharpest tool in well, the then, shed. But, yeah. but before that, you gotta, he hones it down. So, you know, because he, at the beginning here, he keeps it abstract. Who do people say that I am? You know, and that's yeah. where we like to keep religion, actually, uh, especially Americans. We like to keep it in the abstract. You know, I just, for me, I just basically think that Jesus is a good person. You know what I mean? But Jesus isn't going to let it, Jesus is beginning, but he's going to hone in. And then, I mean, this, that's a very, very important yeah. point is that he says, but who do you, and this is the question he asks every disciple, who do you say that I am? And the response to this is um, critical and it is essential. And so Simon Peter says, he gets the A plus. Mm. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And, and I think, again, it's important, I think you've alluded to this, Jake, it's not just, you know, a lot of people think that what's important is to believe in Jesus. I hear people all the time, I believe in God and Jesus. And I always want to say, what about the Holy Spirit? And also, um, it's not just I believing believe in God in and Jesus. Like it's yeah. not just uh, it's not just acknowledging their existence. Uh, as any demon knows that the Father and the Son exist, uh, it's this attitude. It's what the title that Peter uses has layers of meaning. Messiah means you are the Anointed One, the King of Kings the one who has come, the promise that we saw working out in that story at the beginning with Moses' birth. Like, this is how, through that line, God will bless the whole earth. God will save us all. So it's this idea of um, his divine identity, his anointed uh, kingship, uh, his his role to save us all. That's all wrapped up in this. Um, Peter's and there in the midst, and there in the midst of all of these idols... Right. You are the son of the living God. All right. of these, every Jew would have confessed that these are dead. This is dead wood. Yeah. But um, this Jesus, you are the son. You are the, the son of the living God. The only thing that's alive. And then, uh, and then Jesus goes on to praise Peter, and then to start the Roman Catholic Church. Right. That's right. <laughs> no Here offense to our Catholic, Roman Catholic brothers so and sisters. Anyway. Just a little church humor here. So this passage is one where Peter is pronounced, uh, Jesus 
gives Peter this, you know, you are Peter. This is kind of that name change because he says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jodah. I tell you, you are Peter. So it gives him this new name, Petros, meaning rock, and there's kind of a play on words. Uh, you are rocky. It would be like naming somebody Rocky, and I'm going to build my mm. church on this rock. And the keys, if you see the flag of the Vatican, you see those keys. Uh, and that's what this is alluding to this passage. Um, how, how should we understand this, Jake? Yeah, I think um, uh, the, uh, the, so the idea is, is that I will build my church not on necessarily Peter himself, but upon the confession that Peter has said. This is the way um, uh, uh, we as Protestants have historically understood this, and we're right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but uh, he um, he says, you know, I will build my, it's, unsubscribe. It's on, I know, unsubscribe. I know, I know. Um, and, but it's on this that I will build my church, your confession, that you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And it's on that message that the gates of Hades will not prevail against. Um, yeah. You know, it is, yeah, it is right. that heavenly message that calls, uh, causes, it's not, it's, I mean, I love Pope Francis. I love Pope Benedict. It was great. Pope Benedict, it was great to finally have a Roman Catholic as a Pope again. But, uh, um, you know, but that will not stop the gates of Hades. It is the message that you are the Messiah and all that comes with it, the son of the living God, that the gates of Hades will not prevail against. And then, um, and it's very interesting, uh, this is an interesting point of historical fact, that um, a lot of, in the early days of the Reformation, you know, because you had St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, and all of the indulgence were going to this, but um, I read that um, in, the early, in the early days of the Reformation, especially amongst the Hussites, the Hussites would, their churches that were named St. Peter, these humble little barns, what they would do is they would paint a giant rooster on the back of them to remind them that um, actually um, Peter was a denier. It is the message that this is built on. And so, um, you know, and uh, it's not on any of us because we can't bear that weight of the gates of Hades prevailing. And so, but he says, then I'll give you keys to the kingdom of heaven. What do you, what do you, what do you think this is about here, Aaron? Well, there's whatever a, you loose on earth. There's like this. There's a door when you get to heaven, and you gotta have a key sure. to get in. And there's Saint Peter. I think they've updated with now. The it's like Gabriel. one of those pin things where you can have the app on your yeah. phone that lets you in. Uh, so, yeah. Well, but this is this is the office. This is the office of a preacher. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven because what God has always done is He sends preachers into the world with this message. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And with this message, you're given keys to bind things, where you preach the law, and then you are given thing, the ability to loose things in forgive, the forgiveness of sins when you preach the gospel. And this is, the, this is what God does. He sends broken roosters, broken rocks like Peter, you and me and everyone else into the world, um, with this message that the gates of Hades cannot overcome. And with that message, you have in that message, there are two keys. The key, the ability to bind with the law, thou shalt not. And then the ability to forgive um, and free. Um, for Jesus has forgiven the living God, the son of the living God has forgiven all of your sins. Um, Hades does not have the final say. Amen. And uh, that is the powerful, powerful thing. 
And then we have here this incredible thing where he says, don't tell anybody I'm the Messiah. And this is often called the, the messianic secret. Uh, and uh, this is something Jesus was doing all, all over the place. And it's, it's an attitude that I think many find surprising when they read the Bible for the first time, that Jesus just went around telling everybody, don't tell them who I am. Uh, and it's an attitude I wish the church had more of these days. Um, you know, there are many Christians who make a big deal about being public in the pub, being in the public square and making a stand for Jesus, which usually really offends a lot of people and drives them away. Uh, and um, contrast that with Jesus not needing to blow a trumpet every time he did anything. And um, mm-hmm. how I think I, the, the humility that Jesus shows is, is wonderful, and, I, and I, I wish I could. I wish we saw more of it sometimes in the world, uh, where people, yeah, that, if people would be the beneficiary of Christian humble service, and then later on find out, oh, that person who that that was a Christian. I'd, I'd love that they didn't yeah, bash me on the head with the Bible while they helped me out. I actually, um, I uh, um, presided um, five or six years ago. I presided over a funeral of a parishioner here, um, and. Uh, uh, this uh, and so many people when they came through the church were like, I had no idea. Mm. Um, now, on one level, I wish he had said a few more things so that people would have come to church. Yeah. But it's, it's not, not one extreme know. or another. Um, so uh, yeah. So, but the other reason why Jesus orders and that you have the messianic secret is is because two things would have happened. One, people would have followed him for the wrong reasons. Yes. You know, um, as a means to an end. You saw that. Um, you saw that last week uh, with the disciples and their encounter with the the the, the Syrophoenician woman. Mm-hmm. You know, they're like, send her away. She's not. You know, we're you're our means to an end, Jesus. No one else's. And so, one people would misunderstand what Jesus is about. <clears throat> Second, they probably would have killed him before his appointed time. Yeah. And so, like we said, going back to the beginning and bringing this kind of episode full circle, God is working out a plan. And it won't be thwarted. And he's working out a plan in your life, and it won't be thwarted because that plan rests on the message that you are the that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the Living God. And when you are on that rock, believe me, no matter what life throws at you, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And so you can rest on that gospel promise until Jesus returns. Well, and you can uh, rest on that until the next episode of Same Old Song. I think that'll do it. I can't wait. For this week. Uh, (laughs) God bless you all as you preach or you receive uh, a preached word. But whoever you are, know that um, the gospel is for you. Thanks, Jake. And you can, uh, yep, absolutely. God bless you. Somebody's looking. Somebody cares. Somebody wonders what you're Thanks for listening to Same Old Song, and we hope you found some nuggets that will be helpful either in your preaching or just in your life. If you liked what you heard, we would love it if you could leave a rating or review on iTunes. Dave's all will be sad if you don't. We'd like to thank the Narrativo Group for audio production. Keep that Bible by your bedside, ready to rock and roll.